0: still waiting for the cable guy? Oh, Chris, isn't it like anytime you move, you're always waiting for the cable guy? It feels like you're always waiting for
1: the cable guy. So you had a window. Last week talked, you had a window. It was one to three. What happened?
0: Well, the guy came at one. That's good. Yeah, that that's good. It was a good signal. He came exactly at one. His partner wasn't there and he proceeded to wait in his truck doing nothing for three hours while he waited for his partner to come. So I had a two hour window. He was there, but his partner wasn't. So I basically wasted most of my afternoon waiting around for the partner to come. Anyway, there's a reason cable guys have their reputation, I think, Chris. The funniest part of it though, is you were waiting for the cable guy and you don't have
1: cable service. You're not getting cable service.
0: We have enjoyed talking about that. It makes me feel a little bit old, but it's taken me all these years to finally cut the cord. I actually have only an internet connection and uh, no cable anymore. I'm getting everything over the internet. You're like a millennial. I mean, <laughs> Exactly. You're just, just just like a millennial. That's, that's what just, most people say when they look at me. You're like the Gen Z of millennials. You mean Gen X, I think, but anyway. Chris. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I
1: know the truth. Well, in addition to the cable guy, do you know who else showed up recently? Who's that, Chris? The mailman. We've got a mailbag question. We want to get back to the mailbag after a couple of weeks of being away. We've had a few very good questions pile up and we're going to attack one of them right now. Before we do, just a reminder to anyone, if you're listening via Political Wire, you know how to get in contact with Tegan via his website, or just reply to one of his new Politics Extra Substack newsletters. It's a great read every afternoon. If you are listening to this via Chris Reback's newsletter, email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now, let's get on with business and our question from Samantha who asks, there's a lot that's been said about the line through Reagan to Trump. When it comes to the evolution of the Republican Party, plenty of people have gone over how the policies and approaches of the Reagan administration led to how the Trump administration and Trump himself functioned. However, there were two Republican presidents in between those two administrations. How did the Bush family contribute to that
0: change in the Republican Party? Tegan, bring us through the Bushes. I think that's just a fantastic question, Chris, because understanding the Republican Party is so important, especially today as we look to another election, which is really going to be a critical election. And understanding what happened to the Republican Party and what motivates the Republican Party is going to be a key part of understanding how important this election is and what happens in the election. You go back to Samantha's question. The simple answer is the Bush family was essentially handed a Republican party that Ronald Reagan had created that had a balance of interests together that allowed them to vote in Reagan to win in landslide proportions back in 1984. They were given this party. George H.W. Bush took it over and then his son took it over after eight years of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush broke the party. So let's go back to Reagan and understand the Reagan coalition and what that was all about on the Republican side. You had three components of the Republican Party. You had the national security hawks, you had the Wall Street Republicans, and you had the evangelical Christians. And Reagan masterfully weaved those together into a coalition that allowed him to win the presidency for two consecutive terms. And as I said, in 1984, in a landslide. That also allowed George H.W. Bush to carry on that Reagan legacy for at least four more years. When it was finally handed to his son, however, George W. Bush broke that. So the national security hawks, they were really disillusioned after watching George W. Bush wage two wars one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, which really didn't work out so well for the United States. You saw the financial crisis at the end of Bush's second term, in which the financial meltdown really left many of the Wall Street Republicans disillusioned with Republicans at that time. And so at the end of George W. Bush's tenure, the only solid group of voters from that Reagan coalition that the Republicans still had a very firm grip on was the evangelical Christians. And so that party was the one that had to survive and had to turn into something during the Obama years, during the two terms of Barack Obama. So in listening to you, and if I think about Samantha's
1: question, how did the Bush family contribute to that change in the Republican Party? I think you're totally right. Their contribution, and mainly it was W, is they broke that coalition. You said that the national security hawks became disillusioned in the W years and the wars. They really became discredited. And you say that the financial Wall Streeters became disillusioned in the financial crisis, and you're right, but they also became discredited. And so out of that trifecta of hawks, Wall Streeters, and evangelicals, the only ones left standing, I think, were the evangelicals. And the question for Republicans then became, who are we and what are we doing here? I know you know that reference. What did they stand for? So going from an Admiral Stockdale reference to a Hamilton reference, if you won't stand up, what will you stand for? I'm butchering the line, but you remember- I I know the line,
0: but I don't have it accurately either. You know what they stood for?
1: Mitch McConnell defined it. They stood for opposing anything that Obama or the Democrats wanted to do. They didn't have a significant proactive agenda because the party was broken. It had to be redefined, reimagined. And Trump was the one really who redefined it, and he redefined it as a coalition of everyone who had been outmaneuvered, outgunned, outmanned, how do you like that, in the previous 20 years. The folks who had kind of been disillusioned themselves by financial markets, by wars, and by technology. Samantha's question, it's framed as a positive action question. How did the Bush family contribute to that change in the Republican Party? And at its core, the result is negative. They contributed by, they broke the thing.
0: I think that's exactly right. I mean, George W. Bush you know, was handed this coalition that was fraying. And during his tenure, he just exacerbated that breaking apart. Donald Trump came along, looked at it. And one of the things I say about Donald Trump, for all of his issues, so to speak, and for all of the controversy and for everything that he's about, the one thing that he did, if you pay attention over the 20 years before he became president, is he consistently was speaking to Americans who were left behind in the way, or who felt that they were, who were disillusioned in such a way, as you said, by these Bush years. He did so by courting what I like to say as the underbelly of American media, The National Enquirer, Star Magazine, the tabloids that you used to see in a supermarket, the Fox and Friends, the Don Imus show, Howard Stern, where there are large audiences, but this is not considered mainstream media. And Donald Trump courted these voters and refined his message over the course of 20 or so years. And in doing so, he realized that that is exactly, as you said, Chris, the Republican Party was more interested in being against something than being for something. So Trump came in, it really was a complete takeover of the Republican Party. Donald Trump was in opposition of so much of what the Republican Party stood for, whether it was free trade, whether it was wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Donald Trump opposed much of what the Republican Party had stood for over the course of the previous generation, and as a result, was able to pick up enough electoral college votes in 2016 to eke through with a surprise win in the presidency. But it's a fantastic question that Samantha asked, because that Republican Party now is the one that is headed into the 2024 election. And when you look at the early stages of this Republican primary, and you've got right now, we'll see, things may change, but you've got two front runners, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who are getting about 75 to 80 percent of the support of that party. Both of those men stand for much of the same thing, which is they are in opposition to the establishment. They are in opposition to so much of what the Bush family had used in order to gain power as they did for three presidencies. For the Republicans, this actually might be the most
1: important election of their lifetimes because I think they are dealing with the same question that they were dealing with in 2007, 2008, which is the, who are we? Are they the party of Trump and DeSantis, which it kind of seems like they might be because those two kind of have 75-ish percent of the vote. Are they the party of more moderate Republicans? Are they a party of the traditional Republican party? Who are they? Are they low taxes? Are they free trade? Are they globalization? And or are they anti-trans, anti-woke?
0: anti-everything and defining themselves more by what they aren't than what they are. Right now, they're the party of grievances. One of the interesting things about being the party of grievances right now is that at some point, maybe back during the Bush years, you know, maybe after that 2000 race that went on for five or six weeks and the recounts in Florida, the Republican Party, all sides of it, from Mitch McConnell to Mitt Romney to Donald Trump, they all began to realize that the Republican Party had a trouble winning the popular vote, that whatever coalition they had inherited from Reagan, where Reagan rode to victory in landslide fashion, that was no longer possible. They did not have that coalition anymore. Not only did they not have the coalition, they couldn't win the popular vote. George W. Bush won the popular vote in 2004 and Republicans have not won the popular vote since. That to me is the most critical factor in understanding the Republican Party today. It explains why they have moved in so many anti-democratic ways. And I think that they realize with Trump, Trump barely captured the presidency by winning narrow margins in three key states so that he could get an electoral college victory. And then Donald Trump could not win a reelection campaign. I think the Republican Party realizes that if they don't capture power any way that they can, they're going to be the out party right now. That coalition that was broken all those years ago under George W. Bush's tenure just doesn't work anymore. They haven't really created a new coalition that can get a majority of the popular vote. And so they're led into these anti-democratic ways. And it's not just Donald Trump. It's Ron DeSantis as well. It's senators like Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley. There's a whole group of them who I think intellectually realize that the Republicans don't have the majority of the voters in this country right now.
1: Has anyone asked W. Bush about this since he left? He's said a couple things, more talked about kind of against Trump and against the things that are happening. Now, thinking back to the years when W was around and prominent, he historically did not appear to be the most introspective person, but in some ways I feel more now like he is. I mean, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's the painting that he does. Maybe it's uh, the friendship with Michelle Obama. He seems more introspective. Have you heard anything where anyone has gotten to really talk to him about what happened to the Republican Party and what role do you feel you had in where it is now?
0: Yeah. I don't recall any interviews being done recently on that. Obviously, as you said, he has reacted quite negatively to Trump. He still is a very loyal Republican. He still holds fundraisers for more traditional Republicans. He remains a member of the Republican party, even though he he's not invited to the conventions anymore, it seems. Yeah, as you said, he's not a very introspective guy and I haven't seen that. So if you're hoping for some sort of like Robert McNamara moment where there's a memoir where Robert McNamara conceded all of the mistakes that he made during the Vietnam War. I don't think you're going to see that with George W. Bush. We'll leave it to other historians and podcasters to try to examine that. So he's the anti-Groucho Marx. He's happy to be in a club that will not have him as a member. Apparently. I mean, that's what's kind of interesting is you it is interesting about the Republican Party. You look at Mitt Romney as well. Mitt Romney stays a Republican, even though it seems like the majority of his party doesn't agree with him on most things. He votes to convict Donald Trump in an an impeachment trial. Most of his party didn't go along with him. George W. Bush is pretty much in the same way. But all of these Republican leaders pre Donald Trump, it's not their party anymore. While I once hypothesized that the Republican Party was going to break up and go the way of the Whigs and no longer be a party anymore. I really thought the party would go away at some point. Donald Trump managed to pick up the pieces. And what I did not foresee was this anti-democratic push that Republicans like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are really embracing to try to bring Republicans back to power. Now, when we talk about the importance of this election, many Democrats will look to the 2024 election and say, that's why we need to vote. That's why this is the most important election of our lifetimes. Not like it was four years ago or eight years ago or 12 years ago. This really is the most important election because many fear that if Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis grab the levers of power again, then it's game over. Then it becomes really hard to bring back democracy from that because they have become such an anti-democratic party. Well, it was an excellent question from Samantha.
1: Really appreciate it. Keep the emails, questions coming in. We'll make sure to get them on the show. One other topic that I wanted to get to today, something that was in the news just a couple of weeks ago. Amazon pauses construction on second headquarters in Virginia as it cuts jobs. The delay affects three office towers, the Helix Conference Center, and the move, this is all the uh, Bloomberg piece that reported, that broke the news, the move coincides with the biggest job cuts ever and with remote work reality. And the piece states, Amazon is pausing construction on its sprawling second headquarters near Washington, a decision that coincides with the company's deepest ever job cuts and a reassessment of office needs to account for remote work. John Schottler, Amazon's real estate chief, confirmed the pause in a statement to Bloomberg News. Schottler said the company remains committed to Arlington, Virginia, where by 2030, Amazon is committed to spend $2.5 billion and hire some 25,000 workers. But the construction moratorium will delay the online retailer's full arrival at its biggest real estate project, and could create headaches for local developers, as well as construction and service workers banking on Amazon's rapid expansion. So first, give me, if you can, just a little of the history. This was the culmination of the bidding and the bake-off between all of the different areas. I think there were 20, 25, 30 municipalities around the nation fighting for this Amazon building this was that property. This is that effort that the local municipalities were bidding over to get built in their locations.
0: Let's just look at it through the proposed location of Queens, the Long Island City section of Queens, right near where you and I both live, outside of New York City. It was very exciting, the type of thing where one of the large internet companies is going to base themselves here in New York. They were good jobs, professional jobs, tech jobs. This was the type of thing that everyone was very excited about, people were talking about. Then out of a sudden, out of nowhere, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out and she opposed it. And she opposed it for a lot of reasons. She opposed it for labor reasons, that Amazon was not good to its workers. But she also opposed it because the city of New York was going to have to give so many benefits to Amazon to get them to move here. Those were tax dollars that were going to be taken away from other things like social services in her district. AOC represents part of the district where this new Amazon headquarters was going to be located. And so when you look at this news that all of a sudden they picked outside of Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden it's paused, it does make you wonder, was AOC right that whole time? Well, according to AOC, she was right. And as the New York Post reports,
1: AOC mocked on Twitter after the Democratic Socialist bragged about smashing Amazon headquarters in Queens. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's I told you so about Amazon did not go over well, the Post reports. The Democratic Socialist, is <laughs> so funny, the Democratic Socialist was mocked when she bragged on Twitter about killing an Amazon headquarters in Queens after news broke that the corporate giant was pausing construction on a similar project in Virginia. Quote, this is her tweet, when I opposed this Amazon project coming to New York because it was a scam of public funds, the whole power establishment came after us, dot, dot, dot. In the end, we were right, AOC, who represents part of Queens and the Bronx, tweeted Friday. I know I'll never get an apology for that time, but it was worth it, she continued. Back to the New York Post, AOC was right about not getting apologies. Quote, you opposed it to get headlines and cost your district countless jobs. You should resign in disgrace, tweeted Jacob Airy. Journalist Tom Elliott wrote, Virginians have thousands of Amazon jobs that New Yorkers don't, thanks to you. Another man tweeted, that was three years ago, Tootsie, and it wasn't a second headquarters. You are a verified job killer. Mm -hmm. Right about what? Those jobs went somewhere else. Another Twitter user chimed in. Tootsie is a phrase I haven't heard. That might be from another person who hasn't cut the cord and isn't as young as you are. We should beep that out, Chris. Yeah, we we should. I mean, it's kind of pretty ridiculous, but but you can't because, I mean, that's kind of part of the point. It gives you a sense of who's commenting. By the way, out of all the things to choose to quote, to put into your story, you would choose that one and be like, (laughs) yeah, this is going to really be representative of well-thought out points to prove why AOC was wrong. The argument against AOC, is she justified in taking a victory lap? Are these tweeters,
0: Tootsie person aside, correct, or is it somewhere in between? I think she is justified. I mean, when you look at what the projections were for Arlington, Virginia, it was by 2030 that there would be around 25,000 new workers and that Amazon was going to spend $2.5 billion in the community. What most people don't realize is that particularly in this New York area, New York City is New York City. A company like Amazon needs to be in New York City. Amazon has already hired in this New York area since this competition went on for their second headquarters. They have already hired between ten and 15,000 workers. This includes with the recent layoffs that Amazon and other tech companies have been making. So even without those tax benefits, Amazon has already been hiring workers in the New York area because they need to, because they're Amazon and they're a growing profitable company and they need more workers in this area. So it was a big deal because it was going to be HQ2, right? The second headquarters for Amazon. And there was some prestige that went along with that. But the idea that you would give so much in tax credits to a company that, as you know from any tax debate, already doesn't pay its fair share of taxes relative to other businesses. It's the type of thing where I really do think AOC deserves a victory lap on this. Did she foresee this? Of course not. You know, is she a little bit lucky to be able to point to this? She probably is. But I'll bet you the amount of tax breaks that Arlington, Virginia and Virginia gave to Amazon to attract this headquarters. I'm sure there's some people second guessing that decision. That's actually the story I would like to see. Who's
1: gone and talked with the leaders in Arlington who did give away those tax breaks? Look, this is not over. Who knows what's going to happen? Amazon says, of course, they're going to say, but Amazon says that they are continuing. They are going to build it. They are creating the jobs. However, I completely agree. Taking the victory lap, I mean, again, one of the reasons that you and I do this podcast is there are legal reasons why things happen. There are economic reasons why things happen. And what people don't often talk about around policy necessarily is there are political reasons why things happen. AOC absolutely had political reasons why she wanted to kill that HQ too. She had economic reasons she would state, but she absolutely had political reasons. She's a politician and she took a victory lap. That's a political move. And so should she do that right now? Yeah, sure. Now, by the way, she's going to still get the tweets that you see. I can't imagine that she cares very much. And in five years, it may turn out that she was wrong and she took her victory lap prematurely. but. If you don't take them when you can, you might not get another chance. So I say, take them when you can.
0: I think that's well put.
1: Which means, in the end, Tegan, for some reason, the New York Post wrote this story making fun of AOC.
0: I can't imagine why they would want to do that. Can you? Well, the New York Post is pushing the uh, Americas being gripped by Marxist socialists. So that's the storyline that we need to push. And you fit the stories in the storyline, right, Chris? You're a former journalist. Isn't that what you tried to do?
1: That was it every single time.
0: I'm going to let you go you know why? Tell
1: me. I want to find out if the cable actually got hooked up at your house.
0: Well, if you're listening to this podcast now, you'll know that the internet works and that I was able to upload the podcast when we were finished. So there you go. Thanks, Tegan. See you, Chris.